Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Hi, well, thank you so much for having me, Sam. Thank you for joining us. Um, I'm really looking forward to diving into the discussion here. Why don't we get started by having you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved in autonomous vehicles? Sure. Actually, um, you know, my background is fairly simple. Basically, uh, I've been at the University of Washington for around, I guess, what is this now, about the past 18 years. Um, I started in 1999 as an undergrad, and I finished my PhD there in 2009 in aeronautics and astronautics. And I've been in my current position as a research assistant professor for about the past uh, two years or so. I think uh, I think I've heard it referred to as a, as being a lifer, and I can't really <laughs> tell if that's a, if that's a term of endearment or maybe it's some sort of a cautionary term of what happens if you get stuck in the same institution for too long and can't get a real job. But <laughs> in any event, uh, I've been interested in unmanned systems and aircraft probably since around the, the late '90s, early 2000s. So uh, the University of Washington was actually part of the team that put the first robotic aircraft across the Atlantic Ocean around this time frame. And pretty much ever since then, I've been fascinated with applications of unmanned aerial systems. Oh, fantastic. Um, you know, I've noted this uh, in a previous podcast on this topic, but, uh, and you've got a, I'm sure, a unique perspective on this being so close to Boeing. But, you know, currently we think of autonomous vehicles largely in the context of self-driving cars, but there is a ton of work that has happened in this space around flying vehicles. Yeah, a- absolutely. And I know several of your your recent guests have all been talking about self-driving cars. And as you mentioned, that's that's pretty much a very hot topic of research right now. But um, you know, I'm not entirely versed on the history of self-driving cars, but I would probably guess that uh, autonomous aircraft and some of the research in that realm has been going on quite, uh, quite a bit longer than that. It it started to gain a lot of traction kind of in the, the early 90s here. A lot, some of the technology finally came to fruition to kind of enable a lot of the current uh, iteration of what you might think of as an unmanned aerial system. But yeah, this research has been going on for, for quite a while in this space. And in some senses, I think it's it's an easier problem. And in some senses, it's definitely a more difficult one. Mm. I'm really looking forward to hearing you dig into uh, those two areas. But for context, why don't we get started? Uh, or for context, why don't you tell us a little bit about your research focus? Sure. So... Um, um, uh, the lab that I direct up at the University of Washington is called the Autonomous Flight Systems Laboratory, and basically we're interested in pretty much researching any technology that's related to guidance, navigation, and control of unmanned systems or automation in general here. So a lot of the times that has projects like looking at uh, autonomous mapping here, or maybe performing risk assessment of an unmanned mission or looking at maybe path planning. So there's a couple of different projects we've looked at in the past, but the one flavor that unifies them all is they have some technology that's related to an aircraft or uh, autonomy in general. Mm. You say autonomy in general, meaning other types of vehicles beyond aircraft? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We've looked at some things like uh, some obviously ground robots, some surface vehicles like autonomous boats here. But in general, a lot of the times uh, we've historically been interested in the algorithms that are running on these systems here. And a lot of the times the autonomy aspect or the algorithm that you're running, you know, it doesn't have to be flying on an aircraft. You know, you're trying to do some path planning through mm -hmm. a complicated mm -hmm. environment or you're trying to build a map of, of an environment, and you could do that using an aircraft, or if it's more pertinent, you could do that with a ground vehicle or a surface vehicle. So our major focus uh, in the past has really been developing the algorithms that would drive these vehicles or enable some sort of functionality. And the fact that it flies is almost more of a historical um trend with our group is you know we've just been more comfortable with the aircraft and have a little bit more experience with the aircraft but uh as i'm sure you're well aware of and and many of your other guests have talked about uh, autonomy spreads out and is is much larger than a particular vehicle that you happen to be using you mentioned uh boats and um and i mentioned or we mentioned boeing uh boeing i think earlier this year purchased a company that was doing like unmanned underwater vehicles for sea exploration. Have you? Did you ever come across that uh, acquisition or are you familiar with that company? I am not familiar with that particular company or application that you mentioned, but, uh, you know, there are faculty here at the UW uh, that have looked at underwater vehicles. In fact, that's, that's a major research focus here at UW. Um, there's a vehicle called a, a sea glider and it's an underwater uh, vehicle and basically it operates by uh, changing its buoyancy. So sometimes if you're trying to dive, it is a little bit heavier than water and then it has an internal bladder which can change its buoyancy to be a little bit lighter than water. So mm. it's got wings on the outside of it and you can imagine as this thing is descending through the the water column, it can effectively glide as it's descending and uh -huh. As it comes back up, you basically just change the buoyancy to be a little bit lighter than water, and now it just glides in the opposite direction. So now you're gaining altitude or getting closer to the surface, but you're basically able to affect forward motion with this. So there's been a couple of groups at the University of Washington that have been very interested in uh, the underwater robotic side of things, using things like uh, the sea glider or custom-made hardware as well. Okay. Uh, so what are some of the major challenges in the areas that you're focused on? Um, you know, things you mentioned path planning and, and some others. Well, uh, yeah, there, there, I guess that's really an interesting question because in this space, there's uh, there's a lot of, as you mentioned, different challenges. And, and right now, I would almost bin these into to two different buckets. There's obviously some of these technical challenges that people are interested in right now, like doing uh, detect and avoid, right, where an aircraft would be able to find another aircraft and deconflict and avoid a collision. Uh, there's technical challenges like that, but one of the almost bigger problems or obstacles, well, may maybe obstacle is the wrong word, maybe we should just keep using the word challenge, but uh, is one of a regulatory one. The The regulatory environment in the U.S. right now is uh, not the most conducive to conducting cutting-edge research with unmanned aircraft. But mm -hmm. um, it, it's definitely getting better here. So if, if you want to talk about challenges, interestingly, probably more of the issues that we deal with right now trying to conduct research with unmanned aircraft is, is almost we spend more time trying to deal with some of the regulatory issues than we do with the technical challenges right now. And what's your 
approach to that? Is it, are you taking a research oriented approach to that? Or is, is it more of a, you know, traditional kind of advocacy, lobbying, whatever the right terminology is there? Yeah, we, we, kind of do a little bit of both here. You know, obviously being a, a research group here, we do uh, try to push a lot of these technical projects forward here um, from a pure basic research standpoint. But as you mentioned, the, the lobbying and the advocacy and the public perception is almost just as important. You know, UAS right now seem to be this very uh, polarizing topic right now. You know, a lot of people love them. You know, people like you and I and probably uh, the majority of the audience of people that listen to this podcast are, you know, very technologically savvy. They see the potential benefits here of unmanned aircraft and unmanned aerial systems and really think that it's probably one of the next major revolutions in the aerospace industry. So you got that side of the fence, but then on the other side of the fence, you have a, a large chunk of the public right now that, you know, don't think that they're a good tool and perceive UAS as, you know, uh, something that the government is going to use to invade your privacy here. So you have this mm -hmm. polarizing space where you've got some people love it, some people hate it. So I think one of the jobs here, obviously, the people that are working in this space is probably to try to change the perception of some of the people that are a little bit uh, negative or on the fence on these systems and show them that, you know, there really are a lot of positive uh, applications for this type of technology right now. So advocacy is, is, is a large part of the work right now, I think, in order to try to change that perception. Hmm. I'd like to, to get to some of the, the details of the research, specifically on the technology side, but just for sake of completeness, when you think of the positive benefits or more specifically the positive use cases or applications? What are the things that that you tell people uh, to try to win them over? Yeah, the great question. Um, you know, for maybe a little bit of historical background, you know, as you probably know, UAS have their uh, pretty much an established history kind of coming from a military perspective. So a lot of the times uh, you hear about stories of you know, the military using these to uh, conduct intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance or uh, other types of operations. But nowadays, the commercial and the civilian applications of these are, are really opening up here. So, for example, one of the, the technical applications that I think is has a lot of promise here in the U.S. in the next several years here is this concept of uh, precision agriculture. So... The idea here is, can you use unmanned aerial systems to augment or help uh, effectively agriculture and farming here? So, for example, one of the projects we're working on right now is, um, you can maybe call it just an aerial mapping project here. That's kind of the large umbrella term that it falls under. It's a very popular one. Maybe I'll preface that. You know, it seems like right now everybody and their dog wants to use an aircraft to try to provide some type of aerial map. So, you know, we kind of wanted to jump on that bandwagon a little bit as well. Uh -huh. And we've done a couple of projects where, yeah, you, we would like to use a aircraft or some kind of imaging system to gather large data sets here over a farm here. And the uh -huh. data that you gather is, is very interesting. You could do something simple like using a normal electro-optical camera to get your, you know, red, green, blue channels of what does a farm look like from the visual, um, you know, optical range of sensors. Mm -hmm. 
and provide that information to a farmer, that's that's maybe the first layer here is, you know, you would have to take all of these images and stitch them together here to generate a high resolution ortho mosaic of some kind of area. And then, you know, maybe taking that one step further, there are other applications where you can put on different types of sensors, like a multispectral imager that might be able to get you some of maybe the the red edge or the near IR bands of radiation on that same area. And what you can Mm -hmm. actually do with that is people have been looking at things like a uh, normalized difference vegetation index or an NDVI image. What this is, Mm -hmm. is it's basically a plant health map. So what it will do is not just show you what does the farm look like from the air, but it can show you in this other, um, another perspective of that same farm, you can kind of get an idea of which plants are uh, vigorous or healthy and maybe which areas of the farm are, could use a little bit more attention. So Mm -hmm. that's, that's obviously has a lot of potential applications to helping uh, agronomists and farmers learn a little bit more about their, their crops and their products. Hmm. So when I think about that application area, uh, there are, and, and try to decompose it into different problems that one might apply machine learning and AI to, you know, there's certainly the, you, you talked a little bit about the sensors and, you know, there may be some ML in like stitching together, you know, creating these ortho mosaics and doing it in a, I know there's. I forget the term. It's like, uh, you know, essentially rectification, like correcting for earth curvature and other anomalies, uh, maybe removing cloud cover or things like that. Across the, the, you know, different things, aside from the, the, the sensor load and the various things related to, uh, you know, the sensor data. And I guess the other big one is obviously the processing of the data and applying it to the use case, like what do these images tell us about uh, the health of the underlying uh, agricultural system? It strikes me that the, you know, in some ways like the autonomous flight aspect of this, you know, might even might be one of the easiest problems, right? At least if you separate out the, the collision avoidance thing, like, you know, even consumer drones, you could do, you could kind of lay out like a, a waypoint, a GPS waypoint grid um, and just have the the UAS follow that waypoint grid. And I guess this is really all a setup for like, what are all of the things that, you know, someone like me who's distant from this doesn't even think about that make it way more, you know, nuanced and complex than one might think? No, you you bring up a lot of really good points there, Sam. And in fact, I kind of wanted to to dig in a little bit more on that that last statement you made, where you know you, the the path pl- the the flight planning and the actual execution of say an autonomous flight. You, you're right; that is kind of the boring part. That's a that's kind of a solved problem at this point. It's a fairly mature technology. You know, just automating mm-hmm. an aircraft to do some kind of emission. Right now, you know, we've got undergraduates in our lab right now. They go out and they buy a $200 little avionics platform, which is this open source uh, hardware and software package. And you can integrate that onto a pretty much vanilla radio controlled aircraft. And you have yourself a quote unquote uh, drone right now that you Mm. can tell it where you want it to fly. You can tell it how high you can tell it when to land. All of that is is great here. Right. And autonomy. Mm. 
Um, sorry, oh, yeah, the, do you have to know, happen to know the name of that package? I'm sure folks might want to check it out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's a bunch of different ones you can find right now, but I think probably the, the most popular uh, package, at least for the introductory level of getting into UAS here, it's, it's a system called a, a PixHawk. Okay. And it's basically mm-hmm. an Arduino-based system here where you would load on uh, the open source firmware packages called the, uh, it's the ArduPilot family of software. And mm-hmm. that can do things from flying a plane or flying a multi-rotor or doing a ground robot. So it's really a lot of fun. It's sort of the, uh, yeah, the Arduino package for doing unmanned systems. You're building your own unmanned vehicle. It's a pretty easy uh, way to get intro- introduced to these systems. But, okay. you know, like we were talking about earlier, that's that's sort of the uh, easy part of this, right? It's That's the solved portion of the problem here. So mm-hmm. nowadays, uh, unmanned aircraft and UAS, they're, they're really a means to an end, right? All you're trying to do in a lot of the, the research topics now is carry uh, some sort of sensor, right? All you need here is that unmanned aircraft to take sensor somewhere that you want and take the data that you want. And then doing something with that data or extracting the relevant information, that's where a lot of the research is right now. And that's maybe where some of the, you know, the machine learning and the AI that, you know, I'm sure you're very familiar with comes into play here for doing things like you're, you're mentioning the, the stitching of the photos together here. So in that sense, you know, I don't think we're necessarily a cutting-edge developer of AI. We more use a couple of packages that will do the structure from motion and the photogrammetry and matching all the key points up together and stitching it together. That's, that's something that you can almost purchase off the shelf right now. Mm-hmm. But extracting the information, like you mentioned, and, and doing something with that information and having some kind of policy that you can act upon based on what you perceive, that's where it's a, a little bit more interesting right now. And I think that's probably a little bit more where where some of the, the strategic level research is going on right now. Okay. And is that uh, how, you know, with a, uh, a research group focused on unmanned aerial systems, do you, does your group get involved in, in kind of that level of the discussion or is it primarily the, you know, kind of the infrastructure for autonomy? Um, can you expand a little bit on that? What, what do you mean? I think I know the answer to this based on the example that you gave, but the, you know, getting down to the application of, you know, say in precision agriculture, like are, is your research and your, your group's research interests going down to the application itself and some of the, those areas, or is it more on um, the, you know, the platform and the autonomous flight, some of this, you know, uh, given that, the, you know, that there's a base level of capability that's well-established and commoditized, there are also, I imagine, you know, kind of various, there's a frontier there somewhere that might be, you know, object avoidance, or it might be, you know, maybe it's, um, uh, you know, incorporating variability, like how do you update your your mapping grid with, you know, with uh, if it's very windy or something like that. And, you know, or I saw on your website, you talk about like swarming behaviors and things like that. Do you tend to focus at that, you know, these kind of infrastructural or platform kinds of things? Or, you know, is your group in particular also kind of, you know, focusing on these application level questions? 
Uh, yeah, I think I see what you're saying. And <laughs> my answer might not be the most satisfying here. Um, you know, our group, I, I don't want to say uh, tends to be scattered here, but we do have multiple different projects looking at kind of different uh, aspects of of autonomy in general here. And and I'll, I will preface all of this by a lot of it is driven by um, the student initiative here. So if some students have a project that they're very interested in, we do as much as we possibly can to support that and enable that type of research. So that might be one of the reasons why we we do look at a kind of a wider spectrum, almost almost a uh, breadth for a search rather than a depth for search in some of these uh, topics here. So we are very interested in some of the applications here. So so going back to that precision agriculture discussion that we talked about, I, I think you put it exactly right when you said that some of these components are commoditized and uh, readily available. So a lot of the workflow that we mentioned earlier about uh, planning a flight plan, generating the or obtaining all these pictures, stitching them together. That is also uh, fairly mature. You can buy a lot of packages to do that. Now, the question would be, what do you do with that information when you have it back? So right. that's where I think some of the, the frontier that you mentioned is, is happening right now. So it's it's one thing to be able to tell a farmer, here's what your farm looks like from a NDVI or from a health perspective. What do you now do with that information? So one of the things that we've looked at in the past is um, what's been done historically? Well, what do farmers do if they have a problem on their farm? Well, they'll go hire, say, a crop duster, right? And I'm sure you've seen crop dusting aircraft before. There are these uh, biplanes or um, you know <laughs> right. low-wing yeah. aircraft which have... 500 gallons of effectively toxic chemicals, right? And then they would go carpet bomb the entire farm to make sure they got uh, an even application of this everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one way to approach the problem, right? But if you had more information, like say you were able to send out uh, a surveying drone or multiple surveying drones to get this information about where on your farm actually needs this, well, then you might be able to do a more surgical application of some of this pesticides, herbicides, what have you. So we've actually, in the past, we've developed a uh, automatic crop dusting aircraft here. So it's a small, you know, about six foot wingspan aircraft, which has about a liter of aerosolized payload. So some students were looking at, would you be able to use this in conjunction with some of this data that you get from the mapping side of things to now mm -hmm. touch up areas of your farm instead of using a carpet bomb you know, policy? Could you use one or more of these aircraft to deploy and uh, just hit the areas that you need to in your farm? So that's maybe one of the application levels but uh we also look at some of these these the regulatory and more the the larger platform issues because you know as we just talked about there it's you you have to build some platform you know the off you you right. usually have to do some hardware to enable some of this uh these ideas that you want to do so that's one thing i think that makes our group a little bit unique here is that we do have a lot of people that are very interested in spending time getting their hands dirty, building uh, some specialized hardware, conducting flight tests, things like that, rather than just uh, doing the simulation in the lab and making sure that it works. We actually want to go out and fly it. Mm. The precision crop dusting application uh, sounds really difficult. Like I'm wondering, can you, can you share the, the specific results of the research? Like when I think about the issues that, go into that uh in particular the on the on the 
you know, chemical delivery side, you've got this, you know, this, uh, you know, targeted aerosol, um, that you're trying to deliver. It sounds, I'm imagining that you'd have to fly pretty low in order to deliver it. And then you have all the turbulence and air effects off of your vehicle. That's going to scatter your aerosol. Like how how does that even work or how well did it work? (laughs) You again have have a real knack for asking the exact questions that (laughs) I think need to be asked here. So there are a lot of challenges uh, associated with it. So um, one of them that you mentioned right away here is the the fact that you need to be fairly low to have an effective dispersal of these systems here. So some of the students did have to look into some technologies like um, uh, automatic terrain avoidance here. So you need to be able to maintain a very specific altitude above the ground level. Mm-hmm. We didn't get a chance to actually test that too extensively. We went out and uh, the farm we flew this at luckily was uh, fairly completely flat and they actually <laughs> had just mowed all the grass <laughs> the day before. So it was uh, it, it worked. In, but again, I don't think we stressed the system very much mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that was very difficult with this project, and it it maybe segues into some of the other research we've done here, is if, if you think about it, when you have this farm where certain spots on your farm might have uh, the need for application of the pesticide or the payload and others don't, you, you basically wind up with the large traveling salesman problem, right? You've got this spatial mm-hmm. grid here, but then you have only certain locations you need to visit. And then you only have one vehicle with a certain amount of payload that has certain constraints. So effectively, it turns into a traveling salesman problem. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. if you want to scale this up, you know, we were talking about the vehicle only has about a liter of payload. Well, I don't think a farmer wants to be out there all day, you know, shooting one liter of payload, having it land, refill it, exactly, going back out again. So maybe scaling this up to a swarm of uh, vehicles where you could have multiple of these Mm -hmm. aircraft going out and doing this might cut down on the amount of time necessary to do this. But now, instead of a one-dimensional traveling salesman person, you have like N agents that you want to do traveling salesmen with effectively. And that's... That can be kind of challenging. So some other uh, projects in the past that our groups looked at have been uh, maybe trying to tackle some of these problems using evolutionary uh, computation and algorithms. I I believe you had a a guest in the past from maybe from UT Austin talking a little bit Mm -hmm. about this, um, maybe from the financial side of things. But that was Risto Mikulainen. Ah, okay. Right, right, right. I, I remember hearing one of them. That was a really good uh, podcast. And I, I kept trying to think about what were some of the parallels to maybe some of the evol- evolutionary algorithms that we would apply here for unmanned aircraft. And this is uh, this is one of the places where it would work here. You know, you mentioned you have multiple aircraft or multiple agents, and then you have environmental problems. I, I think earlier we were talking a little bit about what if you have wind, what if you have turbulence. Um, if your environment is complicated, uh, it's, it gets a little bit interesting. So one approach that I think has gained, um, uh, has yielded some reasonable results here is trying to do the path and the task planning using evolutionary computation rather than, say, traditional optimization techniques. Okay. You mentioned swarms of vehicles. You know, this is also something that's been researched, at least theoretically. I, don't, I think we're a lot closer to application now with, uh, you know, these small inexpensive vehicles than, uh, previously, but I, you know, I think some of this stuff goes back to the seventies even maybe, or, 
Um, what what kind of things have you looked at, or what have the research results been of the your different forays into this? Like for the precision agriculture, like how far did you get with that, and you know what were how did you formulate the problems? Well, you know, I, I definitely don't want to claim to be an expert in this uh, arena by by any means, but I mean, I'm happy to talk about some of the things that we've we've done in the past. Um, may, maybe going back to that evolutionary uh, computation example, that was a project which had multiple vehicles involved in it, and and maybe you could call it a swarm. I guess the terminology swarm seems to have different contexts and different meanings depending on who you're talking about here, but mm-hmm. from our perspective, maybe we would think about this as just multiple vehicles uh, trying mm-hmm. to achieve some kind of common goal. So mm-hmm. in the past, we've done things like um, searching with multiple vehicles. So we have a cooperative group of uh, vehicles or in your team, and you need to spread out and search a potentially spatially complex environment here, which might have obstacles and which might have danger zones or might have regions that you don't want to be in. So we looked at trying to apply uh, multiple vehicles in these scenarios here rather than just a single vehicle. And you know, searching with uh, multiple vehicles is is by no means a, a new topic. As you mentioned, this has probably been from the 70s or, or earlier. I think um, a lot of the early work with, uh, I, I believe, uh, Alberto Elfs uh, did a lot of work in occupancy grids and occupancy-based maps back in the 80s here. And we sort of tried to extend some of that work here to using multiple aircraft to search an area cooperatively. So that mm-hmm. might be one aspect where you might consider this to be a, a swarm uh, application, although in that sense, the, the vehicles, they were not actually tightly coupled together. They were more uh, cooperatively interacting with one another. Um, mm-hmm. So that was one application, I guess, where you have multiple vehicles. We, we've done other projects here where you try to have a more rigidly structured swarm. So we did some work with Boeing a little while ago where we wanted to have a dynamically reconfigurable formation. So the idea would be uh, you have a formation of vehicles, either in a line or a diamond or some kind of configuration here. And for the most part, that's usually fine and dandy. You can go flying around in the atmosphere with this formation and maintain its structure, no problem. But, you know, you've got people now talking about uh, trying to do uh, urban navigation, like in cities. And you can imagine now you've got uh, constraints, you've got obstacles. So this swarm needs to be able to reconfigure itself and uh, adapt to moving around these obstacles or maybe going through choke points, like trying to get uh, through a, a window or a narrow intersection. So we looked at some of that work there uh, with with multiple vehicles and swarms here. Hmm. Uh, when you're looking at these multi-vehicle problems, whether it's this formation flying problem or formation missions uh, or the the group search, what are some of the approaches or algorithms that come into play? Yeah, that that's that's a good one because right now it seems like a lot of the research is is focused on um sort of decentralized algorithms which are able to scale well. So the idea there would be you try to communicate with uh with your nearest neighbors or using some type of graph topology to determine communication and how these vehicles interact. 
And I think one of the reasons that's gained a lot of traction here is because uh, it's somewhat scalable here, right? If you have Mm -hmm. a somewhat decentralized algorithm where you don't need information from everybody else in your team, you only need information from certain vehicles, uh, that tends to be a little bit more scalable than, say, a centralized or some all-to-all communication topology where the communications costs and the scaling costs just uh, exponentially increase with the number of vehicles. So if you want to do a large number of these, uh, a decentralized approach might have a, a lot of interesting um, advantages here. That being said, some of the things that we've looked at particularly in the past here has actually been a little bit more heuristic or a little bit more rules-based. Um, I think it's really great to be able to talk about scaling this to 50, 100, 200 vehicles. But in reality, (laughs) you know, the state of the technology is at such a a level here that I think you'd be lucky if you can get five vehicles cooperating together uh, simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. right now, we've personally been um, focusing a little bit more on the uh, the rule-based or the heuristics or the centralized type of algorithm to uh, coordinate multiple vehicles. So that search work that we talked about earlier, it was a uh, basically you have this star topology where everybody communicates with a centralized coordinator. Not every single mm-hmm. agent needs to talk to every other agent, but every agent needs to be connected to a centralized coordinator to uh, deter- to allow each vehicle to compute what it thinks is the optimal path for it to take next. Mm-hmm. But that is the calculation of the optimal path to take next is done by the vehicle itself, as opposed to the coordinator centrally determining that and just giving the vehicle a flight path. Correct, correct. So the vehicles would be able to make their own decisions here, although it does rely on information or inputs from the centralized coordinator. Okay. And the coordinator uh, role can can change. It doesn't necessarily need to be a ground station. It could be one of the vehicles. But as long as you have a uh, central agent or some kind of clearinghouse that would have some information that all the other vehicles need, that's what we were, were using to make some of these systems like the searching or the evolutionary path planning work. And is that central coordinator or the central information, is that uh, just state or is there also, uh, are there any elements that need to be centrally computed? I guess it would depend on on the application. So for example, like the the searching application where we had this environment and you wanted to send out a swarm of vehicles to find some kind of targeted, like a, like a lost hiker or a boat something like that, the the information that the uh, coordinator maintained would be a, uh, a map or the state of the world. So you're right. In some sense, it would have some state here that the vehicles could then have access to to make their own uh, independent decisions um, on what to do next here. In the case of the evolutionary path planning here, the idea with that was you know, you would have multiple vehicles trying to achieve some type of team-based goal here. And to do that, each vehicle needed to compute its own flight path to uh, achieve something. And what the centralized coordinator did would be able to 
look at every vehicle effectively made a bid on a task here, they would say, uh, based on my tactics, uh, based on my capabilities, based on my constraints, in order for me to execute a certain task, I think it's going to cost me X amount of whatever the metric is, fuel, time, money. Mm -hmm. And then the coordinator would then be able to uh, effectively act as like, um, like an auction, an open market, like a free market, right? The, The coordinator would be able to pick and assign tasks to the vehicle that could do that for not necessarily the cheapest uh, individually, but the cheapest for the entire team, right? So the coordinator would be able to assess and evaluate who needs to do what so that the overall team could achieve the uh, the mission. Mm-hmm. It strikes me that in that case, the you run into potential like local Optima type problems or, um, you know, the... The cost is potentially uh, highly dependent on like the time horizon and the sequence of tasks that each of the vehicles takes on. Did you look into that aspect of it? Yes, you're you're absolutely right. And I think um, again, I, I by no means want to claim to be uh, an expert or even even well versed in this, but evolutionary algorithms and you know any kind of optimization in some of this very complicated problems here are, are always probably subject to some type of local minima here that in, in, in for a complicated system can be very difficult to assess um you know yeah is this a local minima is this a global minima how are we doing relative to what else uh, options are out there so y- you definitely could fall into that trap one thing that made this this system uh, unique here is, you know, you mentioned this idea of given the amount of time that you have to compute or whatever your horizon was. One feature that we really wanted to bake into this uh, evolutionary path planning system that was developed here was the concept of feasibility here over optimality. So you can probably imagine if you have aircraft flying around, it's great if you were able to have some sort of what you would call a optimal flight path. That's great. But if mm-hmm. it takes you three hours to compute an optimal flight path, that might not be so great if you have actual aircraft in the air, right? <laughs> right, right. It's kind of like having the space shuttle and you want to reboot the computer here and have everyone hold their breath, right? right. They probably don't want to, <laughs> to do that. So instead... uh feasibility is almost more important than optimality, right? Each of these vehicles need to be able to have a feasible flight path and at least something they can do and execute at any given moment. So what we wanted to do was make sure that the evolutionary algorithm only sort of considered feasible trajectories or solutions at any given point. So you, you might think of this as some type of, uh, you know, interior point method from a, from a larger optimization standpoint. But that I think was something that made that a little bit interesting and unique here because optimality wasn't as highly prized as feasibility. And I guess, you know, if you think about it long enough, uh, optimality is, you know, by definition, it's subjective, right? It's like, it's whatever cost function or utility function you decided to cook up and decide to apply to the scenario. Who's to say there isn't a better optimality function or cost function uh, somewhere else? So in a lot of these cases, your constraints actually are more important than what you have decided as the uh, as this utility function to apply. Oh, that's a really interesting way of uh, of of thinking about it, and something that um, something that probably gets lost in a lot of the conversations about optimizations. Did you look at though the the feasibility cost? I guess, for lack of a better term, like did you compare that to uh, the optimal for a given cost function and try to get a sense for 
you know, what was the cost of operating under fixed resource or time constraints? Gosh, you, you, you've got me in a corner there here. I, um, I don't recall the specific details here, but I, I, I'm going to have to punt a little bit okay, on that and say sure, I, I don't sure. believe we actually did a lo- uh, an in-depth sensitivity study on, on that front. Okay, great. So for folks that are interested in learning more about this type of research, are there any particular... Uh, you've mentioned a couple of different projects that you've worked on. Are there uh, specific papers that they can go and track down to learn more about the way you approach that problem? Uh, yeah, absolutely. We have a, a couple of papers on on our lab website here. Um, again, most of them are compartmentalized by by these different projects that we're working on. So, yeah, please or or let me know. I'm happy to share projects or papers with anyone that's that's interested. Uh, yeah, we'll definitely include links to the ones that we talked about. Um, hopefully you can help us uh, pull together a list of those as well as the website as a whole. For folks that want to learn more about the field in general, do you have any starting places that you tend to point people to? Ah, uh, that that's that's a really good question here. Um so I guess it's, uh, I, I it's hard if, to define the field, right? There's so much. right, right. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm trying to think about right now. Is is, is like we we've had a really good discussion uh, here about you know there's the technical field for for sure things like the detect and avoid or the path planning or you know the information processing on the data you return from these aircraft. That's definitely one exciting area of the field. But the the ones that um you know we're seeing a lot come out right now are. Um, there's a lot of interesting flight test and practical application and people actually going out and conducting experiments and gathering data with this. It's almost, it's almost a, uh, a branch of, I guess the more mature sort of field robotics area, right? Is mm-hmm. the, the aircraft I think in the U S are now starting to be able to, uh, to catch up to some of the, the field robotics that people have been conducting with ground robots and, and elsewhere, uh, for a, for a long time. So there's a lot of exciting uh, details about that. So there's there's a couple of uh, companies um, uh, that we've worked with in the past that uh, are are actually conducting a lot of flight tests. Um, you know, it's people at the University of Washington, uh, over at UC Boulder, UT, uh, or at Texas A and M. There's there's a lot of different groups that are doing this type of work. So it's it's hard for me to point to one exact, I guess, paper that would be helpful. So yeah, I, I apologize. I probably don't have a yes. specific reference to, to look at. Yeah, maybe let me ask like this. If if you were talking to someone who was early in their research career and they asked you, you know, what are some specific kind of interesting problems that would be a good place to start to dig into? How would you advise them? Yeah, that's that's another good one. I guess at at this point, where things are really interesting, at least from our perspective here, is um, we're doing a little bit of work right now. We're seeing a lot of interest in this idea of uh, risk assessment of UAS. So if you're not sure on exactly what part of UAS you're interested in, risk assessment is actually an interesting way to take a look at this because what's happening right now is a lot of people... Um, in order to gain uh, waivers or the ability to conduct their operations with uh, under FAA jurisdiction, need to provide some type of uh, risk assessment showing that their operation is is safe. 
And by doing that, by, by conducting this risk assessment, you're forced to sort of take a overall look at not just a specific technology on board an aircraft, but the entire flight operation envelope and operation in general. So you actually have to look at uh, the end-to-end mission using a UAS. So that's, you know, your checklist, that's your area of operations. Then the technical aspects would be that's your platform and what kind of avionics you're running, what kind of control algorithms. So if you're able to understand the the risk associated with the given UAS, that's a, that's a really good way to try to get a bird's eye view of what are some of the challenges and issues associated with UAS and the the research that's going on with them right now. Uh, so we talked earlier about uh, a a software platform like ArduPilot for a system like ArduPilot. How would you go about conducting a risk assessment on that part of it does that involve uh like detailed code path reviews and are you trying to get to a how do you even characterize the risk associated with uh that part of a system yeah that that's an excellent question here and and i think there might even be some parallels and some uh ways we can look at self-driving cars here as well um the, the risk assessment, there's multiple ways you can you can look at this. One is exactly like you mentioned here. You can look at a detailed, low-level implementation of trying to characterize each component here associated with an aircraft, look at mean time between failures, try to calculate or estimate or some otherwise get a handle on the, the reliability of a given component, right? Mm-hmm. And you do that for one component, then you do it for another component, you do it for another component, and, and you can kind of see this also becomes... While it's very detailed, it's uh, it's difficult to do this and scale this because I, I don't know if you if you just go into Google Images right and you type uh, drone or unmanned aerial system and you look at the images page, drones come in all sorts of different size, shapes, taxonomies, avionics. There's just so many different ways that you can configure an unmanned system that it's really not standardized. And trying to do that for any given system pretty much becomes fairly intractable quickly. So. The other way you can sort of look at assessing risk of a given UAS operation or emission is is at a more macro level here. You can look at things like, how often do I expect this to collide with another vehicle here? Um, and, and try to do a larger level risk analysis. I, I mean, in fact, this is really interesting. You know, we published a lot of... Uh, technical papers here looking at, um, you know, things like path planning here or um, mapping or GPS denied navigation or things like that. But uh, our most popular (laughs) publication is actually looking at a model to assess the risk of a given UAS mission on a large level, like like what we were talking about just now. Because if you think about this, UAS are are a very interesting uh, new paradigm in terms of aviation safety. So historically, right, there's there's three parties or three entities you have to care about uh, if you're flying an aircraft, right? You have to make sure that the A, the people on board your own aircraft are safe. B, you have to make sure people on board other aircraft are safe. And then C, you have to make sure that people on the ground, like these bystanders or pedestrians, that they're safe. And this is kind of very similar to a self-driving car, right? A self-driving car, it's the same thing. You got to make sure that the person in the car is safe, people in other cars are safe, and pedestrians are safe. Right. Now, the unmanned aircraft, though, brings an interesting twist on this topic here, right? Because historically, if you just make sure that your own people on board your own aircraft are safe, 
the other two categories follow directly, right? If, if my aircraft is safe, mm-hmm. I probably won't hit other aircraft and I probably won't hit people on the ground here. So the implication of that is your aircraft needs to be extremely reliable and robust and and safe, right? The the airframe itself needs to be reliable because if you ensure that, you ensure the other two parties are safe as well. And that's the exact same for a self-driving car, right? So I've, I've heard many of your guests previously talk about safety is important for self-driving cars. That really means, again, making sure that the vehicle itself, the self-driving car is safe and therefore won't endanger anyone else. Now, with the aircraft, though, if you take out the person on board the first group, right, if you take off the people on board the aircraft, now you just have to worry about those other two categories. That's people in other aircraft and people on the ground. What that kind of does to you here is it means you can actually sort of have a semi-unreliable aircraft as long as you make sure that it doesn't hit other aircraft and it doesn't hit other um, pedestrians on the ground here right so mm. that's why I think you've seen a lot of these unmanned aircraft nowadays they're they're not they're nowhere near the level of reliability of a manned aircraft right right, right. mean time between right. failures are are <laughs> fairly often <laughs> actually you know you you have these uh, lipo powered, these battery powered, effectively souped up hobby aircraft going out and doing these types of missions here. And as long as you conduct them in, you know, like a remote enough area where you're not endangering those other two categories, you can probably conduct these type of operations in a, a perfectly safe manner here and still have the same level of reliability and safety as a as a manned operation. It just it brings a slight paradigm shift to the idea of where these systems can be used. Which yeah brings us full circle back to uh, one of your opening points that um, regulation in particular and the overall perception of trustworthiness of uh, these systems is a, you know, a, a just as important as the technical bits and pieces in making, you know, making it all happen. Right. Yeah, yes. The yeah regulatory compliance and making sure that the operation is safe, I think, is a is a huge portion of the of the research and the public perception associated with the UAS right now. Uh, well, Chris, this has been a fascinating discussion. I appreciate you taking the time to share with us. Um, where can folks learn more about what you're up to? Oh, uh, absolutely. We've uh, we've got a website, and uh, and actually, I'm almost kind of uh, embarrassed to admit this here, but you know, in this age of social media, here we've got a lot of uh, very savvy students here in our lab who. who I've set up a nice Facebook page as well for our group here. So <laughs> okay. we've got uh, we've got those sort of environments in the on the internet that people are are absolutely welcome to uh, check out. And it, yeah, if anyone is near the University of Washington or in the Seattle area, you know, I would invite them to swing by the lab, talk with us. We a also have a uh, flight testing facility near here where we fly every once in a while and we try to invite people that are interested to kind of come out and observe and maybe fly with us. So there's a, mm-hmm. we, we would love to have any interaction with anybody in the area or elsewise. Great. Well, I'll include a link to your page on the uh, UW site and um, get with you about any other links that uh, it would make sense to share. Oh, thank you. That would be great. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. Uh, I appreciate it. No, thank you so much for having us. It's been a real honor to be here. Thanks, Chris. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. For more information on Christopher or any of the topics covered in this episode, 
You'll find the show notes at twomolai.com slash talk slash 129. If you're not an ML or AI practitioner, but you want or need to increase your depth in these critical areas, remember to check out my upcoming AI summit at twimlai.com slash AI summit. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.